This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. 
One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Happy New Year and welcome to episode 401 of the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back on the show, Sarah Jenke. Now, I can't think of a better person to have as the first episode of 2021. Sarah is not only one of the leading researchers when it comes to the fire service, but is also well-versed in epidemiology. So we discuss a host of topics expanding further on firefighter and first responder wellness, but also the impact of COVID on our profession, on the civilian community. We talk about the special needs community and so many other areas. So there is so much to unpack in this conversation. And I think her lens, her perspective is that middle road that I've been wanting to hear over and over again. Before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I truly do read the feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And with this being a free library, all I ask in return is that you share these incredibly powerful stories of these men and women that I have on the show so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Sarah Jenke. Enjoy. Well, Sarah, I want to say welcome back to the Behind the Shield podcast. I am so excited to be here. I was excited when I got asked back for a second time. Yeah, well, I know we were planning on doing it earlier, and then, God, this this year has been a bloody nightmare. But um, <laughs> the last time I saw you, you were heavily pregnant. Like, I was expecting you to pop a baby out on the stage in the Rosecrans <laughs> Symposium. So um, tell me kind of what this year has been as far as, as family dynamic and motherhood. Yeah, so she actually turns one on Sunday. So, um, and, and that trip was my very last one pregnant that I was allowed to go on. And it's been crazy. My mom was just saying that she goes, uh, so a year ago you were like getting your bags packed for the hospital and man, to think about what this year has been compared to what I thought it was going to be is just, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And having, um, having a newborn and raising a newborn is, was an odd experience during a pandemic. So yeah, what a freaking year. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about it. So, so what was different, you know, because I haven't asked anyone that that I know gave birth a year ago. So what was different with someone having, you know, kids before um, from a mother's perspective in 2020? So some of it actually, I think, was good. I mean, in all honesty, like when I had Crosby the first year 
because he could travel for free. Like I just took him everywhere. He'd been on probably a dozen flights by the, by his first birthday. Um, and Sawyer has not like, has not left my side because I'm working from home now. So like, I'm still breastfeeding. I see her all day long, every day. I mean, she, she's either down, like everyone that I've been on a conference call with this year has seen Sawyer because she's always up in, in my face. Um, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but also kind of like an awesome opportunity. So I'm trying to stay positive about like the benefits of the, this year. So that's been amazing. Um, but it's, all, you know, it's also been a challenge where like she sees my parents and she knows my parents, um, but she doesn't know them well. Like she knows most people through FaceTime. And so sometimes like we'll see people in person and she won't go to them because she doesn't know them. Like she recognizes them in the phone, but not in person. Um, and my family, like huge family, we are usually together all the time and doing stuff all the time. And she doesn't know that life. Like she knows being at home almost always. So it'll be interesting to see when, you know, when life gets back to some semblance of normal, how she does in terms of like socializing with other people. And like we saw with Crosby with the, um, when we did the stay at home orders way back at the beginning, like his socialization was shot. It took him a while to get back to where he would interact with other kids. Yeah. So, so let's expand on that a little bit. Um, obviously I was with, uh, Chris Nikic and we'll talk about him in a moment, but you know, the social element was very important, especially in the special needs community. So how, again, positive and negative, how was this last year for him? So it was, it was, it's been, it's been rough, but it's been good too. Like it's given us a lot of focused time to work on stuff. So that's fantastic. Um, and he has like adapted in other ways and he definitely like, so we'll do, my parents live within walking distance. And so we'll walk over to visit them and we'll sit out. Like when it was nice out, we would sit outside and, um, but for the longest time we didn't, he didn't get to go over to grandma and grandpa because my, you know, my dad's really compromised. They're both my, both my parents are in their seventies. Um, and so we would go and we would visit, but we'd stay distant. And then once, um, after a while, once we had kind of quarantined, they quarantined that we let them get closer. And it's like, now he cries if he can't hug them. And it's been just this, it's just a weird when he, because we, you know, he wasn't in school for a while. He wasn't even going to, um, he wasn't doing in-person therapy and he wasn't doing daycare. And so when he went back, he would not look at the other kids. He would lay on the floor and like, like throw himself on the floor face down and refuse to look at anyone that was not me, my husband or my two girls. And I think he was just so not used to it, but he has gotten back to where he's engaging. You know, he's still doing parallel plays, not like interacting like I think he would if we um, hadn't had that setback. But it's also kind of amazing. I mean, I don't want to be Pollyanna, but it's also amazing how adaptable he's become. You know, it took a couple of weeks to get him back to where he was interacting, but he's back to interacting. So it's kind of, it's also kind of cool, um, you know, to see the, ebb and flow of that and the skills that he started to lose he's like blowing away now i mean not all of them but we're getting there you know it you know i think i told you this last time like i just feel like he makes me realize that all these timelines that we have in place for everything and how things should go is yeah that's our that's me pretending like i have any control over the world (laughs) 
Well, that, that brings me that brings me to uh, to Chris. So that was one of the the things that I learned when I was sitting down with him and his dad was just that that one of the errors I guess that you know some some parents are I don't say that errors are making, but some of the mis misconceptions I guess is that you know the progression should be at this speed. And he was saying that the progression is just less, but by being patient with it, Chris ended up doing a blooming Iron Man. So I mean, just totally just destroyed so many uh fallacies about you know the capabilities of a man or a woman with down syndrome but um you know what what was uh you know what was crosby's uh interpretation of chris and, and his journey so his came through the lens of his dad so i was out of town the day that um that that it was all televised but my husband and i were texting all day and like it gives me goosebumps just even thinking about it and he saw it through the eyes of nick who watched who watched all day long and he goes, I just would break into tears and oh, it was make me cry. And Crosby would just come up to him and pat his back or give him a hug. And it's like, you know, he didn't, he didn't know he's four. He didn't know what was going on, but like just the, in some way I think he knew something was going on and just like to look at Crosby and think that could be him someday, you know, and now he has a record to beat um, for you know, competing with other people that are his peers in terms of uh, in terms of having the same diagnosis. Like that's just amazing. It's amazing, and it's and it. I mean, amazing for Chris and amazing for everyone who. I mean, all my social media was like lit up with all the families that you know have people with Down syndrome that were like, this makes it possible. So. I mean, I think, you know, people talk about like representation matters and I think representation does matter because that would have never been something that we thought we could see, we would see for him. And now, like, it, it's something that we could see for him. I mean, probably not um, on my training because I'm not really great at any of those skills that they do in a trial. <laughs> <laughs> but his dad's all over adaptive training. So, yeah, so it was just, I just phenomenal. I just feel like it was a huge leap forward. But yeah, Crosby's experience of it was really just his dad crying off and on. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so sweet. But again, you know, that you see that so much in the Downs community with just that compassion and that kindness, yeah. you know. So the fact that he was consoling his dad, whatever he was that's crying right. at. <laughs> he was, yeah. And he got all excited, you know, when he crossed the finish line. Nick was like screaming and, and like jumping up and down. And Cros so Crosby's screaming and jumping up and down. <laughs> It's beautiful. Well, it's funny because because Chris and his dad, you know, his dad especially talked about inclusion, and you know, it was challenging. I mean, Chris Chris smashed this record during COVID. So when I went to interview him, he was on a bike, you know, with the computer screen, and they do laps in the neighborhood, and he was having a swim, you know, in uh, in not in pool, so you have to find open water, which which served him, you know, for the beach swim anyway. But you know, yeah. he would they were just reinventing and 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 being, uh, you know, just. Um, you having to use innovation for for the training so so not only was he just running a triathlon he was having to do it despite all the the conditions but when you said when he said the word inclusion it kind of struck me like how crazy that is because most of the population couldn't ever do or not it was certainly not the, the where we are now could ever do a, a uh, an ironman so yeah you know he took it way above 
yeah, whether downs on or without downs, he took it way above most human beings. So he he smashed inclusion. I mean, he <laughs> we need to be included into his realm now. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's really phenomenal. It, it, it's, but I do think, and that's back to like the lesson of all of it is that you know you adapt and overcome. Like his mantra of the one percent better, like. Yeah, one person better every day. It, it, nothing can stand in your way if you if you commit to it. So, eh, just awesome. Such an inspiration. Like, would that have happened in a non twenty twenty year? I maybe, but maybe not. You know, I think it slowed all everyone down enough that, like, I know that it was definitely something that we were excited about here. And I don't know, maybe in a busier time, we wouldn't have even seen it. So, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think that's it. You know, there there was some some obvious lows politically in some other areas, but <laughs> I think Chris is absolutely one of the highlights of this year. Yeah, definitely. Beautiful. Definitely. Well, speaking of 2020, let's segue to <sighs> COVID-19. So <laughs> with you, you know, having such a background in, in research and, you know, obviously in the fire service, but outside that prior, um, I even saw you had a paper on HPV, which I'm going to pick your brains about later. Um, yeah. Um, tell me, you know, without without loading any questions yet, tell me what you've seen through your, your eyeballs from, you know, kind of February onward. Yeah. So, so I will say, like, this is, and I'll preface this with, like, this has been amazingly tragic and horrific, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not trying to downplay that, but. Um, having you know, working in the, the field of epidemiology, like this is like the mother load of all amazing science. <laughs> like it's been to watch it and to see like, I mean, to be able to like track trends and look at all the science that is coming out on this, like, the, you know, the articles that are being fast tracked, like this is the most amazing this will go, I really believe, go down in history for, on the science side of things is like I think the vaccine development will go down on the science side of like the most amazing medical advances and scientific advances. Um, I think for, from the from the total, you know, from the human side of me, this has just been nothing but tragic. Um, but from the science side of me, like people even know what epidemiology is now. I've never been... I actually um, got fellow status with the American College of Epidemiology this year, and I've never been more proud to study in that area because nobody ever even knew what that meant before. <laughs> People would always say, is that like a study of skin? And it's, no, no, it's <laughs> The <not."> epidermis. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and every epidemiologist I know has said, oh, yeah, I got asked that question all the time. So to, from like the scientific medical like progress side of this is – it's been amazing. Now, that being said, all the other parts of it, um, not amazing and, and horrible. And um, I started hearing early rumblings when, um, you know, even before some of the stuff was really hitting because I have a family in healthcare, a sister that's a hospital administrator and a brother-in-law that's actually an ER doc. And so early on, they were sounding these alarms and they would say these things that I'm like, no way, it's not going to be, you know, like it's, I remember my brother-in-law telling me, oh, yeah, at some point we're all going to be wearing masks everywhere we go. And I remember thinking, you are on drugs. Like, that's so far extreme. Um, it's never going to happen. And now look at us. Like, the things that I never, like, I never thought we could have a lockdown. I never thought, you know, we would cancel school. Like, I, in my mind, it was like that could never 
that could just never happen. Nothing that that big could ever happen that it would, it would push all these things to, to move forward. And I was wrong. I was wrong, but, um, from the science side of it, I just absolutely fascinating from the human side of it. Um, what a scary year, you know, like in every scary year, difficult in terms of every, um, decision, how the government's moving forward, how each family should move forward, how each individual should move forward. Everyone has their own risks and they're trying to weigh the risks and benefits. And like, also what a year for grace and just like giving yourself grace, giving other people grace, like, wow, it's, it's insane. I was, so I was talking to, um, and then in the like first responder world was talking to Frank, um, Lido from FDNY. And he said, cause we actually have a project on this. Um, now we got funding to, to look at kind of the, an ethnographic approach to looking at how COVID's impacted the fire service, be, because I think that there's likely will be more pandemics. Um, and so we can like prepare for the best and do kind of an after action review of like best ways to move forward on this one. Um, but he said, you know, this in a lot of ways has been worse for us than nine 11 was. And I think, man, not a fan of pandemics, not a fan. I prefer to not go through another one, but yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's been so interesting to watch because I mean, again, just like you prefaced it, every single human life that's lost is tragic. I wrote a book about, you know, it's called one more light because of that exact concept. However, you know, there, there's also a balance where, you know, you, having the philosophy that you want to do something to you know keep keep the ball rolling as it were with with the you know the economy with the workforce whatever it is doesn't mean that you're a murderer and that you don't care about human life and that's that's what's been so challenging to have a conversation during this time is you know there's a lot of people that have this philosophy as if you're not locking down not strapping a mask to your face then you don't care about human life and you're selfish and all this stuff I, I want to have a conversation where we're also talking about the entire arena. So, you know, the resiliency, immunity, the you know, the sleep, the nutrition, all that stuff, so that we are addressing other areas that are making us more susceptible when this virus is floating around. And I think that's that's been a challenging thing to do because it's either, oh, this is a Chinese virus, you know, that was made by the Chinese to murder all Americans, or... If you're not sitting in a bubble in your house, then you're a mass murderer, you know. So I'm really intrigued to kind of hear the, you know, your perspective because I know that you've talked so much about resilience in our profession, and I think that that's a very important conversation that's been suppressed during this time. Yeah. Well, and hasn't that been the year though, right? Like everything is so extreme, and either you are right or you're wrong. And of course, everything you do is right, and everything everyone else does is wrong. Like this has been a total year for like, I have to stop myself anytime I think I'm a hundred percent right about something. Cause I'm like, ah, I, that means I have a blind spot. <laughs> no, exactly. But then, but the middle ground is, is, you know, is lost in the white noise, whether it's, you know, blue, uh, blue lives matter or black lives matter, or, you know, like I right. said, either extreme on COVID, which is just ridiculous because most people are sitting in the middle looking left and right going, can you all shut up for a second so we can actually, get some stuff done so let's let's talk about you know again not loading it at all what you have seen as far as the numbers um it seemed through my very basal lens that the numbers that were initially coming out didn't seem to be founded on what we were all taught in statistics 101 as far as sample sizes and you know um 
the uh, the where the samples were coming from. So you know, lead me through epidemiology wise the initial numbers and kind of where we are now, like real world. Yeah. So I think the initial numbers were incredibly scary, and I, yeah, and I think you know getting numbers from other countries is always challenging because people, the way they ask questions, everything, you know, I mean, I think we know that numbers are politically motivated. I don't think that that means all numbers are wrong. And I think the other thing is, and I think this is just what you see with science, like in general, is that you have this, okay, we know this is a big problem. And as much as people hate to hear we need more research on this, that's so often the answer to every question because you're able to like refine stuff. And some of the early work was suggesting I mean, some some of the early like assessment of it was suggesting that, uh, you know, it was like the row knot of this. So like the virility of it was way higher than it later studies found. Um, And so like it looked like it was even more infectious than it was. And it was looking uh, or than than we think it is now. It was looking like it was aerosolized in that which I think there's enough evidence that it still is, but not to the extent that we thought it was. I mean, I think the initial shutdown was absolutely necessary just to be able to catch breaths and say, okay, you know, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Because I think some of the reason, I mean, what I, and again, like this is so nerdy and I hate to like say I'm excited about this because it sounds, it sounds dumb to say I'm excited, but like we have, our county has a, our dashboard shows like when different mandates went into place, when things opened up, when they went down. And it's the most amazing, like responsive looking at our um, our incidence rates. It's it's the most amazingly responsive to what's put in place and how much. And there is it. There has been this whole balance of like the cost of lives and the cost of, um, you know, is it is it, it because there is like with this balance we have to find between the economy and deaths. And I mean, it's like, that's a hard thing to say, but that is the balance that we have to look at. And, and I do think if we had just all stayed exactly the way we were when this all started, I think, I think the death would, would be overwhelming. I think, you know, without masks, without the whole social distancing, that kind of thing, um, if we'd just gone on, I think all the data is pointing to that, that would um, just really an overwhelmingly devastating a devastating thing. And, and, you know, a lot of the um, early data, there was some question about like whether kids were able to spread the disease or more likely or less likely to spread the disease. And for a while, it looks like maybe they weren't. Um, the newer data, I think, is saying that they do spread the disease. A lot of times they don't have the symptoms that other people have. Um, I think early on, it sounded like it was really okay. It's only if you're older out of um, out of shape and we're finding that it is more likely in those instances but that it's it still is hitting kind of across the board different folks but now we're seeing kind of some of the different um, you know risk factors that people might have but we see that it's not just the old people um, so I think that's you know it's scary but it's good to know so I think it what the initial data and then it's always you know people don't trust the data and then is it I think there were some, either I have heard concern about, um, oh, well, you know, just every death, they're just counting them all as COVID deaths, which isn't accurate. I think it is cool, though, like, how amazing is it that we're able to now, like, who would have ever cared how your local county government counted deaths before? And now we know that they can go in and match. And if you're getting tested, they can match your test and they can, you know, delete double tests and those types of things, like, 
don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm not answering your question because I'm just going down all these rabbit holes. And <laughs> <laughs> how amazing the response has been, but there I think been a lot of pitfalls too. Um, so I think we still, I mean, where I'm at, I think, um, I think definitely caution is still warranted. I think that there, it's been amazing to see the cities that have been able to handle this well. Um, it, I, I think you, you know, you get what you, what you put in. I think it's not surprising that the places we've seen huge hotspots have been huge hotspots. Um, I think the fact that there have been, you know, these spikes after the holidays, I think that's what we knew would happen. Like the data is doing the, the, I say the data, the disease is doing exactly what we thought the disease would do. Like the virus is a virus and the virus could care less about, you know, the way we're politicizing it one way or the other. But from the, again, from the nerdy side, I think it's, I think it's super cool to see the virus <laughs> doing what we expect. The only person who likes COVID on planet Earth. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's what I'm like, I don't mean that I like it. I mean that it's so affirming for what we thought this would look like. And I think, you know, and that's what I think. So the application we put in where we're doing co-ethnographic approach, one of the arguments we made is this will not be the last pandemic. It wasn't the first pandemic. It just has been like one of the worst. But given like the movement and the travel and, and all that, like this is not going to be the last pandemic. And there are good things that have come out of this in terms of response and how we think about state personal safety and how we think about, you know, limiting disease spread and stuff like that. Like, I've never washed my hands and I'm an obsessive hand washer, but um, as much as I do now, and there are now all these things that I think like, hopefully I will be less likely to get other diseases in the future just because I'm now obsessive about cleanliness and about, you know, all these things that um, I've always been obsessive about, but it really makes me even more obsessive. So I don't know if that answered your question. I think I do. I, I, I do. I'm, overjoyed that it wasn't quite as bad as we thought that it would be in the beginning but I think it's I think it's I, I think it's still bad and I think we're still looking at some really bad months ahead and I hope that you know I'm so optimistic about with the vaccine although I was skeptical at first um, I, I was like a great cheerleader for it until someone asked me if I was going to get it and I was like oh <laughs> uh, hell no <laughs> <laughs> And then it pushed me into like, all right, so I need to research this for me. I need to research this for my family when I'm offered it. Am I going to take it? And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think there's a lot that we need to, I think it, I, I, I do think that the thing that it did that was good in a lot of ways, um, is laid bare a lot of what, where we where we are vulnerable, like as a society, where we're vulnerable, vulnerable, I can't say that word today, um, you know, as a fire service where it like where we can shore things up, um, you know, how do we make sure that people are getting messages? How, how do we make sure that like departments that are finding things that work and are helpful are, are sharing those with other like best practice things? How do we make sure that um, information, valid information is getting out and where's that coming from? Like what information streams should we be setting up in the fire service? Those types of things I think are important. Um, you know, one chief I was talking to had a great point. He's like, before he goes, I was at this meeting and I looked at my deputy and I said, have you ever, ever in your career used an N95 mask before this? And he said, it occurred to me, we've had them 
but we've never used them. And then our, we had started having this conversation about like, if we see peaks in flu in the future, maybe we need to think about readjusting how many people just walk into a house where everyone in there has the flu. Like maybe we need to start thinking about how we pr- better protect ourselves. Like you can watch the flu coming. We, and so you can see like the wave. And that's one of the cool things now is like, with the COVID tracker, like you can see, I could, I'm enrolled in one of the studies where you, you know, track your symptoms and if you've been tested and that kind of stuff. And you could see on the everyday reporting within your county, as that went up, like two days later, you'd see it tick up in the um, positives and the the incidents. And it was like, it's amazing because we have that technology. We had a lot of that technology before and we just didn't use it. And so, like, how do we use that to make people better and healthier in the future? How do we, you know, I, I know that we've talked before about, like, all the health and wellness stuff and how protective it is. Like, if if the fact that it can prevent you from getting a disease that can make it and so you can't breathe and have possibly long-term, lifelong consequences um i mean i feel like that's a pretty good motivator that like let's get started now and so the next time something like this rolls around we're better situated yeah well i don't know did i even answer your question i I think you do you answered those several that i hadn't asked so that was good too (laughs) but um but no but i mean i think that's that's something that i've observed and you know and, and this is just again through my lens but i think it's been pretty well received by a lot of people who've had on here is the wellness element, the the um, resilience of the individual, meaning you know nutrition, sleep, fitness, um, you know air quality, all these things, has been completely suppressed in my opinion. Like if you talk about comorbidities, it's like heresy. No, 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 no. There was this twenty six year old, and he was fine, and he died. You know, and not ignoring the other ninety five percent that were generally a lot more susceptible. So what really breaks my heart is here we are now in December. It's almost 2021. This thing came around in February, and there's been no talk of improving health in this country, no talk of the obesity epidemic, of the opiate crisis, of you know air quality. We learned that beautiful lesson from the environment when everything completely shut down. Everyone's like, wow, we can see the mountains again. And then a few, few months later, it was like, ah, fuck it. Everyone get back in your car. We're fine. You know, so I, I, that's just it. I, there's a giant glaring message and the reason why Americans are suffering is because we're a really unhealthy population when you look at the majority. And there's no talk of that. It's like, oh, well, the vaccine's here. Let's stick it in our arm and everything will be fine again. Well, the vaccine isn't going to help your diabetes, your obesity, your COPD, your CHF, your strokes, your, you know, your suicide, your, your addiction. None of that. Same way as your, your, your tetanus didn't, you know, <laughs> change any of that too. So that's, that's what drives <laughs> me crazy is you're right. The last conversation we talked about all kinds of wellness initiatives. And yet it's still such a hard sell in the fire service and in the phys- civilian community. I feel like people have learned absolutely nothing from this virus so far. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, I mean, to be honest, I think that's one of the messages that we need to push forward, you know, and I get in some ways I get the psychology behind if you're already in a really, t- really relatively unhealthy spot to, you know, I get the psychology behind like I'm already screwed. I can't. It's too late for me to fix this. And it could have been for this time. But that's where I think we go. OK, but what about next time? What about the next pandemic? Because it's, it's not going to be 100 years like I I would like to think I would love to think that this will be the only pandemic like this that Sawyer will live through, but it's not. 
And so I think we have to take the lessons learned and go. And and I do think, I mean, I think it was so scary for so many people. I know it was scary for me. Like I started looking at my own risk factors and going, yeah, I need to take care of this. I need to work on this. My younger sister, who is a, um, uh attorney in Chicago, has high blood pressure, has had it for years, is incredibly healthy outside of um, the blood pressure. And like it scared the shit out of me. I thought, what if? something happened to her and this like just the you know this and even now like the after effects of COVID we're hearing it's not a you get sick you feel better it you move on we're starting to see like that that even folks that I was um, reading an article the other day that even been folks who had low symptoms and or relatively um um I was going to say rare, relatively um, asymptomatic. Yeah, yeah, or just some kind of like COVID light, um, or also kind of asymptomatic. Yeah, I can come up with the word rare. That's the closest I could closest I could do. I'm having word finding problems. Maybe like, <laughs> it's probably COVID. A little bit of, a little bit of <laughs> oh, I think I have COVID every day. <laughs> if I could do that home test, or I do it every single day, I would like three times a day. Um, it'd get expensive, but. No, but you know, like it's, she has it under, she has her hypertension under control, but it was, it's really scary. And it made me look at my own, um, you know, my own health and go like, okay, where am I, where am I high risk on this type of stuff? And what, you know, how is this matching up with what we see for the research coming out about who's getting sick and how they're getting sick and, you know, long-term effects of this type of thing. And, oh, so I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe maybe what the maybe where the movement's going to be on that is moving forward you know like sometimes it's in the heart of it there's just no like emotional space for it maybe again now now when i talk to you i always feel like i'm such a pollyanna like oh it's all going to be great <laughs> we're going to change it all <laughs> you know maybe like this now that the panic has passed maybe we can make movement on that i don't know yeah well i mean then that's why we're having conversations like this because it it needs to yeah. be it needs to be repeated and sadly like i said a lot of people are scared to have those conversations because it's not pc to talk about you know obesity and you know i see yeah. that i mean it's heartbreaking but i've number of posts i've seen damn covid you know they took my uncle my auntie my whatever and this person's 400 pounds and yeah. you know i hate to be the bearer of bad news but covid didn't kill your loved one their ill health killed their loved one they just finished him off but if we, you know, if you have the vaccine, you're COVID free. A month later, you have a heart attack. How is that any better? You know, we have to get this message that our men and women are dying. You know, by genocidal numbers, aside mm. from COVID. You know, and and the time that the time that I think I did a post a few months ago. So in seven month period, we'd lost, I think it was half a million Americans to obesity and and smoking related disease in 2019, and that didn't make the news at all. You know, and now mm-hmm. we've lost like 300,000 the whole year through quote COVID, many of whom are probably interwoven with those, those people anyway. So, you know, that if, if we're truly, if we truly care about lives, then these should be as important as this damn virus, you know, but it's not. It's have the vaccination. It's going to be, we're going to be talking about fucking, you know, Tiger Kings and Kardashians all over again. <laughs> I will say the Tiger King was a nice, distraction <laughs> <laughs> no, i watched it too i'm not gonna lie <laughs> but i still think carol baskin was the reason for this thing in the first place 
Who would have who ever <laughs> who would have ever thought? Well, but then you know, so because you bring up a really interesting point, like it didn't make headlines. Like that's the kind of shit that's making headlines all the time in like the public health community and the you know, like I belong to the obesity society, and there's all this research about that. And I agree, like it's there. It, it takes something really crazy in within that world for it to make the headlines. Um, but I think so. Good. <laughs> Not to be Pollyannish, but but um, you know, like who even knew that what public health was or cared what public health was before before this? Like, I think we can, and that's why I just really do feel like we need to use the movement. I I agree with you. I hope that we don't let go of this like perfect opportunity to learn and this perfect like teachable moment on all these topics, and that it doesn't all get lost. I mean, because I do think, like you said, with the vaccine, like, are people just going to take it and feel like, oh, okay, all is well. I hope not. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to think not, but that's because if I think that, if I think that it, uh, it gets really dark really fast, if I think this is just, you know, no lessons learned. Yeah. I mean, and some people are, and that's the thing. I think that the point is to move the needle so most people are rather than just the, the few in our echo chamber. But staying on that for a moment, one one thing I did at the very beginning of this is I, I put a video out, obviously based on you know our conversation and, and so many other people that have come on here, was the fact that we... We as a nation, as a country, oh, excuse me, as a, as, a, as a planet, we're leaning on our first responders, on our doctors and nurses and everyone else that's in that, that infrastructure. That same group are the overworked, sleep-deprived, you know, mentally and physically um, broken, a little exaggeration, but, you know, um, worn down. Mm-hmm. And to me, that seemed like they were far more vulnerable to a virus like this that attacks the immune system um, or, you know, it, it, it creates a, a heightened immune response, should I say, from a, a broken down immune system. And we have seen a huge amount of responders, you know, partly, I think, because of that and partly because so many of ours are deconditioned because of, again, the, the working conditions. What have you observed with this virus and, and those populations specifically? I think you're right on track. I mean, the number of first responders that have died, the number of nurses that have died, like, I think it's, I just think it's tragic. Um, and I think that it does, I, I think all of that plays into it. I mean, you, you and I talked about sleep before and like the um, health implica- implications of a lack of sleep. And I think a lot of the folks, especially early on, like, it, oh, like you just couldn't, there wasn't a second for you to take a breath. And I think that just so heavily weighs on people that, you know, the burnout rate is insane. We did a, just did some lit review on that for hospital workers. And I've had some conversations around like kind of resilience building and um, combating that in healthcare settings. And in one, we started talking about rural settings, which is also an interesting other side topic. But um, I think it's like the perfect storm for people to, get really, really sick with COVID is if you're working in those, I mean, not just the exposures even, but just the stress of doing that. And like the unknown, especially early on the unknown of how people were contracting it. I mean, that some of the, some of the um, concern that it was something that, you know, you could pick up from your groceries, like those types of things. So that on top of, Oh, and I'm going to work every day. And 
I'm going to work where I know there's COVID and I'm going to come home and expose my family to that? Or am I going to not live with my family or see my family? And then I'm not going to get sleep, which I think, again, underlies pretty much every major health concern that we're seeing in first responder and healthcare groups. Like it just is, uh, I, I do love that as much as I know first responders that are like, oh, I, I hate being called a hero. I'm like, I think it has raised a lot of awareness about the risks that those folks, you know, day to day, every day face. So yeah, it's, um, it's scary. It's really scary. I did read a really interesting article though the other day that um, looked at nurses and like their stress around COVID. And that actually one of the, one of the groups that was less stressed comparatively was nurses that work in COVID units compared to nurses that don't, which I thought was interesting. And um, I talked to a friend of mine who works in a COVID, a COVID unit and she said, I feel safer in the COVID unit than I do anywhere else because we know what we're dealing with. We have the, the proper precautions in place. We know that we're protected because we know we have to be protected and we have the resources we need to do it. And I'm like, gosh, that's, isn't that interesting? You'd think that would be like the highest. And granted, like she says, it's very stressful in terms of like she's set with people dying who can't be near their family or she's holding an iPad as they die and her family thing is like also tragic. But um, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah interesting yeah that is that is actually i saw i forget what it was now it was like a mini documentary and it was on um i think it was one of the hospitals in new york but i saw kind of the opposite as well where the icu nurses i think it was specifically the inability to save you know and obviously icu is not you know the the outcome isn't always great there anyway but just doing all the things that should have overturned any other respiratory issue and then them Mm. constantly dying obviously now we realize that intubation and you know sitting on your back wasn't actually the the best things for this particular you know disease process but yeah that seemed like that weighed very heavily on them just just like you know they they keep dying you know so Well, and there's also this stuff about, it's also brought up all this interesting ethics and like moral injury and like, especially as we see hospitals overrun, like how do you decide who's going to get treatment? Is it first come first serve? And that's what my brother-in-law that I mentioned in the air doc is out in a rural setting. And that was one of the questions they started having early on is how, so if this does, and in all honesty, before the shutdown, with the way things are tracking, it was looking like it, it would be this way. So I, I'm hoping that we can, our hospitals right now are overrun here, but, um, and our rate is insane. Um, so I hope we don't get to this point, but there is a lot of conversation around how do you decide who gets care? If we have a limited number of resources, is it first come first serve? Or if you have you know, how do you weight like the value of human life? And what if your your weight of that is different and you're not allowed to, to treat or do what you would typically do? Um, and then, you know, which is, again, bring, brings to the whole like moral injury. There are people, you know, that weren't being coded because they knew they were COVID positive. And so they were just, you know, pronounced dead and, and they had to move on. Um and it break like back to not not to make everything about me, but there was a lot of discussion in the special needs community because there were um, 
were some policies that said, you know, people with disabilities were lower on the list of um, people to basically people to save that resources should go to people, you know, without um, cognitive delays before people with cognitive delays. And it's like, okay, so then like in the whole grand scheme of things, like that brings into question, like, how do we value people? How do we value life? Whose life do we value? Is Crosby less valuable than his friend that he goes to daycare with that is neurotypical? Like, I would say no, but that's because I'm his mom. So all these, it also brings all these interesting ethical issues. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just hope we can get it. I hope we can get it controlled to where it's not. Cause like you said, you know, everything is a trade-off, but I also see, you know, our, our main admin folks are up in New York and um, they lost a lot of, a lot of family and a lot of friends. And I, I hate that we put, I do hate that people are in, I can't imagine being that setting, you know, I can't imagine doing that, doing that work and feeling so helpless and so hopeless. Now, what do you think some of the, the factors are that are making, you know, the survivability or even thriving through COVID in some other countries better? Because I, I mean, I see, you know, obviously some countries are doing very well. To me, again, my layman eyes say Sweden, Norway, when you look at the population, they seem to be a healthier population. Their food seems to be of a, a more holistic quality. Um, I'm assuming mm-hmm. their air quality is probably better. So, you know, when we look at it, you know, sadly, when a country's doing well from, it seems to be portrayed like, oh, they're irresponsible. They don't understand. Da, da, da. But I see it kind of through a different lens. Like the, someone said, someone came on the show and they said something very interesting. They're like, the virus doesn't want the host to die. And that's a very good point because yeah. it doesn't, it, you know, it wants to reproduce and then leave you again. So, you know, the, the, the goal is to have, you know, I would say a, a somewhat, a, you know, um, small immune response it does its thing and it moves on but because there's so many people that are so chronically sick you know i think we have so many people are having an inflated response that you may not fit an age bracket but you know actually physiologically you are 70 even though you're 46 yeah well and i think it's a combination so i think it's a combination of those things i think that because I think some of it is you have places that are healthier, but I don't think that accounts for all of it. I think some of it, I mean, I think in some ways when the timing of this becoming and all of this becoming a political issue shot us in the foot, because I think you can see some pretty like beautifully (laughs) correlated (laughs) insignificant relationships between um, how willing an, uh, an area is to like limit exposures and do kind of the behavioral things. Um, like I was in, um, Chicago and you wouldn't go anywhere. You wouldn't even walk down the street without a mask on in Chicago. And that's what I'm told New York is like now, like you, there's no question, like we're all masking up for this. And so I think there's a combination of those things. I think there are, there's the healthy, um, healthy environment and healthy people. And then I think there's also the, I think there hasn't been this debate over this is what we're going to do as much as. Is, like the minute wearing a mask became a political issue, it, we, we had to know, like, we are designed to be an individualistic society. Like that is what we've done. It's not like other places where everyone, I mean, when I've traveled to Asia, it, 
it's just more collectivistic, right? So like once they said wear a mask, everyone just put a mask on. I mean, what they were doing when they curtailed the virus in China was like nailing people's doors shut. Like you were, you're staying inside and everyone just stayed inside. There wasn't like, I'm going to stay inside, but I'm also going to go do these things. Um, so, I mean, it's been, and that's in some ways has been like this huge grand experiment on what works and what works and what doesn't. And so I think it's a combination. I think, um, I think we've learned that we are so far not collectivistic on a lot of that stuff that it's, um, disheartening, I would say, um, but yeah, I think you can definitely see, I think you have, I think you have within the U.S. So I think there's two things there, two things is I think one comparisons to other countries and how they've responded. And then I, I and they're just general health. And then I think comparison to um, within the United States and where you've seen spikes and, and, you know, hot, real hot zones and not real hot zones. And then also, like I mentioned, the rural settings, like we've been able to see disease spread and how that, and that's why I think rural areas are getting hit so hard. I mean, one of the things that we highlighted um, in our review of the literature on that was that people in rural areas didn't have even less healthy, um, you know, parameters. You see higher rates of obesity, higher rates of hypertension, those types of things. And man, I think it was, it, it, again, perfect storm where they, one, felt protected because they weren't in the city, um, and two, worse health parameters. And so the rural areas are just getting hit like, oh, and are less prepared for it too. So that's the other thing that I think is scary about it. I do think, you know, I think a lot of the reasons that we see um, the death rate slowing is because, you know, older people are taking this, are, are more likely to stay, you know, stay put where I think most of the, it's why we're seeing a shift in the age spread of the disease too, because, you know, the younger folks are out and they tend to fare better in general. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of finding out, um, you know, who's got it and who's had it. I'd love to spend a little time with, with the test because that's another um, area there seems to be some confusion. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who, I know a lot of people who have done, let's start with the antibody test. So a huge amount of people mm-hmm. have done antibody tests. I haven't found one person yet that tested positive on it. And again, this is, you know, in my area or, or people I've spoken to on that I know in this network, but my dad is a retired veterinary surgeon. Um, you know, he he had a kind of, a good concept on that. He's like, well, when this first happened, your sample sizes were probably the people coming in the ER with COVID. Mm-hmm. So your, you know, your levels were a lot higher in those human beings. And, uh, you know, the research he did is like, I think that they maybe, you know, set the levels too high. Um, and then, you know, my understanding as well of, of, uh, the physiology behind it. And please correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm so, you know, terrible at retaining information, but, that we have this acute response, obviously there's a high level of antibodies, but then eventually it goes down to memory cells so that we recognize a foreign body and then create antibodies again. So we're not walking around just bursting with antibodies the whole time. So with the antibody test, like how accurate are they? Because I think one of the con- the conversations at the moment is, that, do you need the vaccine if you've already been exposed? So those are fantastic questions. And I think the early antibody tests, so early on in this, I I was super excited, like, oh, you could just, you know, because so many people I knew had had, like, weird illnesses in the months before that. I was like, maybe they already had it. And my dad, like, my dad was sick for months, and he got tested, and he's like, well, my antibody test came back negative. And I said, oh, that definitely means you either had it or you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) 100%. 100%. Either you did or you didn't. 
because I think there was so much variability in those tests. I mean, even between companies. And I, I told my dad, I'm like, if you take three tests and they all come back negative, then I'll believe it. Um, three tests from three different companies, I would believe it. But there's just so much variability and there was so much confusion about. And there, I think I think still, to be honest, I haven't looked at the data on that more recently because I think they've worked to, you know, make them more reliable. But early on, some of them were, were really like that. Like it was just a total coin flip, whether it came up positive or negative. So, um, yeah, it, 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 they're using it in studies. So I'm optimistic that it's, more effective than um, that the test, you know, the newer versions of it are more effective than the old ones. I know that there's a study going on that's looking at specifically in firefighters and those that have developed antibodies and, you know, that they believe had COVID at one point in time. And some, you know, were asymptomatic and then others, um, more than one test, obviously. So some were asymptomatic, um, but came out positive and then others that, that were sick that did, you know, developed antibodies and it came up. But the testing, like the development of that. And again, like I think, I think the lesson there is you can't rush too quick and think like things just develop at the speed of science and science is not fast. Like this is as fast as I've ever seen. I've ever seen science, but science is just not a fast process by nature. It's all about, you know, pontificating and, and testing and then re-pontificating and, um, so I think I still am, I still am skeptical of antibody tests as being, uh, I wouldn't go out and expose myself based on a, a positive antibody test. You know, I wouldn't go out and like lick the face of someone with COVID, but um, I'm sure the test will get better, but still, I actually, I would never go out and lick the face of someone who had COVID, whether I had antibodies or not. So. <laughs> Um, and I was reading up on the question about should you get a vaccine even if you've had it? And the answer was yes, because partly because they don't know. I mean, that part of the challenge of this was that is is that there's so much that we still don't know. Like and I know one of the concerns with the vaccine is, you know, long term, um, you know, what's the long term safety or what's the long term efficacy and some of that we don't know. And we know you know, we don't even have year data on whether you, if you had COVID, if you still won't get it a year from now because it hasn't been around for a year. So, um, so yeah, I think I, I know the current recommendation is that you still get it. And I don't, based on the people I know that have had it, that have had it bad, like they're like, I will absolutely take it. They, when they describe what it was like to be sick, I have a sister-in-law right now that's on disability and 30 something year old. Um, and she's like, you just, it's just like, she said, it's definitely not like the flu. <laughs> you know, people talk about feeling like an elephant sitting on your chest and, you know, a couple of people that have ended up in the hospital with it. And it's just, ugh. so yeah, I would definitely take the vaccine even with, even, even uh, having, knowing I had COVID. Yeah. Well, one of my friends, one of my close friends from my last fire department, from my uh, California fire department, was uh, you know was hospitalized with. There was two two guys. One he um, he was actually intubated, but he had you know a very nasty car accident not long before. I believe there was an infection involved from that. So again, immunosuppressed. And then my friend, you know, again, twenty year firefighter, you know, all kinds of other stuff as well. So there were definitely some some precursors as well. But yeah, I mean, he said. 
he said it was it was horrendous and it was like trying to breathe through a straw the whole time so there's no question obviously that when people get it you know that it's absolutely horrific with with the vaccine though so i'm curious and again i'm asking totally unloaded question i'm just an idiot so i need some clarification we have the flu virus which is russian roulette you know they they have no real way of telling you, yes, you are protected for all the flus this season. You have HIV scared the shit out of us when, in the 80s when, when I was a little boy and thought I was going to die of AIDS, not understanding, you know, what the, where you got it I from. Did too. But that's 40 <laughs> years and we don't have a vaccination for that. What makes it so different that they can categorically say within eight months we've made a vaccination for this brand new virus that we just discovered? So, it, so well, the answer to everything in the world, it's money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mentioned that someone asked me that I was all for it until someone asked me if I was going to take it. And then, and in fact, this was an exchange on Twitter because I said, who's going to take the vaccine? And a friend of mine that's a firefighter was like, are you? And I said, well, you'll be able to take it before I can. And she said, you, that's a cop out. Will you take it? I will if you will. So I was like, well, I don't want to say like, I'm not going to say that I'm going to take it if I don't know anything about it. So it put, sent me like on this trek to learn about the development process and why it was because the, the, the words rushed process fastest and hit, you know, like that scared the shit out of me. And I'm like, I don't know that. And I'm a vaccine fan. Like, I'm like, give me every vaccine that you've got. Like I would like double for my kids. Please. <laughs> like I'm a huge believer in vaccines um, in general. So, so then I'm like, all right, so let's, dig into this. And I read this great article about how really the money that went into vaccine development was, was a big driver of how it was able to move so fast. Because a lot of times what holds vaccines up um, is that companies are really slow to develop them. So if they have one that's a candidate and they think it might work, you know, they'll test it in very small samples and then slightly larger samples. And if there's any indication that it's not going to work, they, um, they weigh, they back off really fast because it's really expensive and they could basically lose their ass if they um, invest, you know, millions of dollars in vaccine that doesn't get taken to market, which was different in this instance because there was such a sense of urgency. I can't remember the billions of dollars that went into development of this, but, but that was definitely a component of that, that there was, it was basically an instance where you had, whatever resources you need needed to develop it. And you didn't have to be, you could try out 10 different things at a time. So I think that's one reason that we saw that. Another thing that I, that I really believe this has brought medicine and science together in a way that nothing else I've, I've ever seen. Not granted, I'm only 42. So it, my life is not as long as, as some, but that I'm aware of in terms of just collaboration between organizations like and companies and for-profit companies, like typically all that shit is trade secrets and we got to be, you know, and you don't, you want to be first to market, but you don't want to, I think this is the first time that all this development, all these development pieces have really like gone all, everyone's like, we are going to communicate on this. We're going to collaborate on this. We're going to talk about it. We're going to share successes because we're fighting for like, really we're fighting for, the entire world. So this is not about who, you know, who gets to market first. Although I wish I'd have stock in Pfizer a year ago. Um, <laughs> right. But so I think that's the thing. And another, like you talked about like the um, crapshoot for the flu virus. So the um, COVID, it looks like actually is, is evolving slower than they first were afraid that it would 
would. And there's, I looked into that because also fascinating and I don't, this is not my area of expertise, but I looked into like, how do you even know? Like, because, okay. So early on a, a colleague of mine was telling me, she said, you know, what we're seeing is that people are getting sick and then going home from the hospital and then coming back. And is it that there's, they're catching a new strain of COVID? Is it that, you know, now it looks like it was, it's likely that they just had not fully recovered and that type of thing. But so I looked at like the, how, how these viruses evolve and mutate. And there is an international collaboration where everyone, there's a, a like basically a por- web portal that everyone communicates on. And so they're able to sequence these viruses I guess sequence the virus genes. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but they're able to look at the evolution of it and how fast it evolves. And it actually of, it's a, it's apparently a very, um, I don't want to say basic cause that's not the right word, but, but it, not advanced. Well, I guess not advanced would be, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say basic. I'm just going to say not advanced. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm totally different. Being my big words, um, but but basically, it's not evolving. It, it's not mutating as um, fast as they initially worried that it that it would, and so they're able to develop that um, based on what they do know. Although, God, totally fun fact: there was early on, so there were people who were getting it. Like you know, there was that huge hotspot up in Washington, and then the the hotspot in New York. That was different mutations of the gene for, or for the virus from what I understand. And so you could tell if you, if the version that you got, like I'm here in Kansas, so you could, they could look at the virus and tell if you got the version that came in the U S from the East coast or the West coast based on like the, the mutation of the virus. If I, if I remember that correctly, um, again, this is outside my wheelhouse because I don't study viruses, but, um, so I think that that, that was one of the things that I learned too, though, is that they are are able to do this. The other thing is using this mRNA because you know they're, it, the the vaccine is incredibly effective, like way more effective than I, the the folks I follow on um, on social media. You know the Med Twitter group and like Bob Walker from UCSF and um, people like that were the day that the um, Pfizer report dropped were like giddy with with the results, which I, you know, was skeptical of because I'm like, wow. Um, but it, so this mRNA process of the vaccine, they actually had been developing for a long time. So it wasn't like COVID hit and they're like, ah, let's try mRNA. It was something that had been in development for a long time and that they were just able to capitalize on that um, for the COVID vaccine and found it. So, it, I mean, from what I understand, that's why it's as effective as it is, which is awesome given it's caused a worldwide pandemic. So those are that. So my answer now is yes, I will take the vaccine, but I, I will, and I will absolutely give it to Crosby when, um, once, you know, the data is out and, and he can get it. And particularly, um, there was a study that came out about people with Down syndrome and it was like, once they were hospitalized, they were, I think somewhere around a hundred times more likely to die of COVID just because it basically is, uh, causes, exacerbates all the health conditions that they already have. So, and are at high risk for. So yeah, yeah, I will get the vaccine when it's my turn. Beautiful. Yeah, well, with with uh, Crosby, I remember with, you know, talking to, to Chris and his dad, you know, the, the ability to 
to create force was a little bit diminished. And it's interesting because, again, back to my dad, one of the things he was talking about early on with this was using respiratory trainers to create mm-hmm. stronger breathing muscles as another precautionary thing, either prior to getting it or you know, even, even people that have it. So I can A, see how the down community would be um, – you know, more susceptible if they're not able to create the same force. But also another thing for exercise and prevention, the stronger you have, you know, the breathing apparatus that you have, the more likely you're going to have to get all the shit off your lungs and get back to normal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they just don't, I mean, just muscle tone. And like we think of that with, in general, you know, muscle tone, like, you know, how toned you look. But with people with Down syndrome, one of the things we learned with Karaza early on was that, like that's all muscles in your body. So that's including, you know, your heart muscle and your, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's uh low muscle tone is, is kind of all throughout. Although it's hard to believe that with Crosby because he's a strong little kid and he can beat his sister up. Like he tries to wrestle her and I'm like, knock it off. He, he's, he's rough, but <laughs> well, yeah. Spe- speaking of lungs, another kind of tangent I want to go to, because I know you did you know, research on tobacco and firefighters a few years ago. Um, you know, one of the things that's really surfaced now is um, vaping. And I can't remember if we touched on on this last time or not, but obviously it's even more um, pertinent now with this being a respiratory um, disease. What Have you seen any kind of correlation between vaping and either COVID-19 or just health issues in general the last year or so? I would say don't do it. I, I you know... So they, early on, it was like perceived that that could be like a, a um, the hell I'm having total word defining issues. <laughs> it could be COVID, or it could just be because I'm a little a little uh, overworked these days. Um, but like a risk mitigation approach. Um, so it, it was the conversation around vaping that it could be help people quit smoking and that kind of stuff. And I've talked to a couple of people who have, um, I, I think the data on it, I haven't seen specifically with COVID. I would go, I would go the early, um, the early impression that that doesn't seem like a good idea is definitely being borne out in the data that it's just not a good idea. You know, there were the diseases that we were seeing um, that were, did get some air airtime on the, in the media about, people with that what it was what was it like that crackly lung or whatever it was uh, popcorn was lung yeah popcorn lung crackly popcorn same <laughs> <laughs> same uh I, I i think kind of the risks associated with that now i like i said i haven't seen it related to covid but i can't imagine that it makes you that, that it doesn't put you at increased risk yeah. just because breathing stuff into your lungs is never a good idea no well, speaking of vaccinations, so I'm, I'm not anti-vaccination. I'm, I'm very kind of moderate. Like, you know, my son's had all his shots. I, I have obviously have to have yeah. mine being a healthcare provider as well. Um, but we just don't do the flu shots. I mean, just based on the, the lack of success and, you know, the fact that everyone says that it's not supposed to give you the flu, but almost everyone gets sick as a dog after they get it. So <laughs> that's another one that questions my, my common sense. Um, but I just took my son for his kind of 12, 13-year-old uh, wellness check, and they said that now they're recommending boys get the HPV virus um, or vaccination as well. So he did have his done based on the cancer, and it kind of blindsided me a little bit because I'd, I'd never heard that before, but I know you did the paper on that. So 
what is what what have you learned about HPV not only with with girls and the vaccination but also boys now? Yeah, I so isn't that interesting? Like a vaccination against a cancer, but I mean, basically is, and I know there's a lot of, so the study we did was a qualitative study and I was, I wasn't lead on it. I was with some physicians at the local children's hospital and they wanted to look at like people's beliefs and understanding and concerns. Um, and I think I, my daughter, my daughter has gotten it. Um, and I that would, I would definitely encourage people to get it. Uh, and get it for their kids. I think one of the challenges, one, one of the challenges was just like lack of awareness and education around that it even existed or that it was like a series of shots or, you know, and then there's like the regular vaccine concerns that people have, which I understand. Um, I, and I think, you know, there's been some, um, I, I do, I should say I'm a huge vaccine fan, but I do understand the concerns around it. And I think that there have been some like very egregious, um, uh, I don't want to say nefarious, but it's some some egregious misinformation that you know that's been put out about things like that in the past. But I think the other challenge with that is like it's really easy to go, well, I just don't want my kid to have to ever have sex and until they're you know an adult, and I just don't think that that's. I think, I guess my thinking on that is, yeah, I prefer my daughter not be sexually active until she's older, but I know that she's at high risk. Um, I can't control that. And if she ever developed cancer based on me going, ah, just don't have sex. And then you're not going to get, you know, only only have sex with two people in your life and then you won't get cancer. Um, (laughs) And then she got cancer. I would not forget myself. So yeah, there ad, have you seen the ad campaign out about it? No, I haven't. That's the thing. I've never heard. I mean, not that I study, you know, childhood vaccinations for a living, but I, <laughs> I just never heard of that before. So, you know. That- yeah. Yeah. There's a national ad campaign now, and it basically is a bunch of kids saying like, and it's like them looking at the camera saying like, did you not think that I could get cancer or something like that? And it's that's basically the take home message of it is. Um, you know, you have a way to prevent your kids from getting these cancers later on or, or spreading, you know, HPV. So do that. And it's, I mean, it was, it's pretty, I mean, as a parent of a teen who I had to choose about taking her for an HPV vaccine, um, it was pretty impactful for me. I thought it was, it was well done, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, the physicians I know, especially the adolescent physicians I know are, really trying to get the word out, but it's like, how do you, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome medical advance, but that's also kind of an awkward conversation when you're talking about like a 12 and 13 year old. Yeah. Well, I found that having a face like a smacked ass was great contraception for me because girls were completely <laughs> unattracted. So that was my HPV. <laughs> Whatever. They were all like, oh, do you hear that accent? No, they were all English. Well, they, they were unimpressed. <laughs> yeah, I guess growing up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. It's a weird. Being a parent of a preteen or teen, that's another weird. It just. Uh, I just hope we both survive it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you mentioned um, Frank Lito earlier, and and you know, I know you just connected us via email. I've actually got to add to that connection, but I'm almost certain that was Frank that I spoke to that presented at the uh, Florian Symposium that we were at in San Antonio, um, and you know his his whole thing was obviously um, counseling addiction in FDNY. So. I know you've done again. You've done studies on on alcohol in, in the fire service, which I think is one of the elephants in the room when it comes to thinking of addiction. So, as have you had any kind of aha moments or new research in the last year or so regarding addiction? Uh, so funny you should ask. We actually have a study funded by FEMA looking specifically at alcohol and alcohol use and how we can develop kind of like some awareness campaigns around alcohol use and kind of its impact on overall health. Um, and, and its connection to every other health parameter, you know, I mean, like its connection to sleep, its connection to, um, obesity, nutrition. I mean, when we did, so we did a, um, nutritional epi study and found that when people, when firefighters, not when people, when firefighters were drinking, they were drinking on average, the caloric content of a Big Mac. So interesting because if you think about, that amount of calories on top of what you would typically eat in a day, um, that's not a small amount of calories, right? And so we're looking at how do you like build a prevention and education awareness that will be accepted to the fire, acceptable to the fire service. So we've done a lot of qualitative work around it and then, you know, talked to some like um, leadership folks and a lot of firefighters and then, how do you create messaging around get help if you need it, but not coming in? You know, most alcohol research is based on, you know, oh, we can't say um, that you should moderate your drinking, that you should be a moderate drinker. You should just tell people not to drink. Well, like, can you imagine if there was a, uh, if we created a alcohol use toolkit for fire service and we came in, we were like, just don't drink alcohol anymore. It's like saying like that get would... more sleep. I've seen. I've literally watched people talk about that before. Yeah, you just need to sleep more. All right, yeah. thanks. That's great information. Oh my god, awesome! <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I was unaware of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it um, it would work exactly the way you think it would work. Not at all. So yeah, it's um, it's been an interesting process to kind of like maneuver that and and think through. Think through how you have those conversations about healthy drinking versus not healthy drinking type of stuff. And yeah, it's, um, it's been, a, it's been an interesting process. And then there are a lot of questions around like, how long should it be between bottle and nozzle? Like, should you, and then for the volunteer fire service on top of that, like if you're a volunteer firefighter, does that mean you should never drink because you technically could get called to a call at any time? Um, yeah, it's it's been really interesting, actually. It's been a fun study to do. Yeah, well, tacking onto that, I mean, I, I've heard again anecdotally, um, you know, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people um, in our professions, associated professions, reporting an increase in you know mental health issues because of the isolation. Um, what have you seen through your lens, or maybe heard through uh, Frank's lens? So one thing that I think is has really like raised um, raised a red flag, and Frank actually did that in our last call. Is he said we were talking through kind of like what are you seeing? I I think of Frank as like the canary in the um, in the mine because I feel like he starts to see things and issues within his 
population. And then you start to hear about it all over the country. And one of the big things that he said is he is the uh, is not specific just to alcohol use, although he he does say that that they've had some increased um, uptick there post COVID post start of COVID. But he also was talking a lot about um, like holiday blues and the dealing with holiday on top of dealing with COVID on top of being a first responder. A lot of people are really struggling. So that was the, that is one thing that I think we definitely need to kind of get the word out about just around like being aware, um, paying attention to both to yourself and other people, like knowing that this is a part time that people are struggling. People are feeling even more isolated. I mean, holidays is always a time that people, you know, a lot of people struggle. It's supposed to be all like happy and, and just like a Hallmark movie, but it never is. Um, and so he said that kind of paying attention to the fact that this is a, a challenging time in the best of instances. Um, but then kind of what happens when you're, in COVID and you're already, you know, separated from other folks in your typical um, support system. And then also being a first responder, just this year is just a very hard year to be doing that. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the biggest, um, the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition some closing questions. Um, probably the same ones I asked you last time, but let's see if you've got any new um, information or answers for us. Um, so the first one is, is there a book that you've read that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, I got so many books that I've read lately. That is one thing that I've enjoyed is I've had a little bit more time to read. Um, so, so I'm going to answer with more than one. One is Inclusify by Stephanie Johnson. And because we're also doing some work on like diversity and inclusion and it's, talks about like um, the benefits of creating a more inclusive and diverse workforce. Fantastic book. Absolutely awesome. Um, the other one, and this is completely unrelated to anything we've talked about, was Just Mercy. I can't remember the author of it, but the most phenomenal, and I think there might be a Netflix movie about it now, um, but the book is just, it's just amazing and so thought provoking. So I actually have too. And I think I said why we sleep last time. So I'm not going to say that one, but, um, but that's an, but why we sleep is, um, by Walker is now on my top five of all time books I've ever read. Yeah. I've still yet to contact him too. I'm still working on that. Tweet him. I just followed him on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I'll try again. I know he's very, uh, very closed off. I think he works for Google as well. So I think he's kind of got um, himself shut down. Um, just mercy. Wasn't that about a wrongfully convicted um, yeah, prisoner. Yeah, I saw the film. Um, I forget the guy's name now, but he's was in the Black Panther yeah. movies as well. But yeah, very very good film. Uh, movie book book is even better. Like I and I would say most one of I've seen the movie, I'm like, yeah, um, I don't need to read the book. But it's even. Eh. Yeah. Brilliant. I have to get that too. All right. Well, speaking of movies, so are there any movies and or documentaries that you've loved apart from the Tiger King? I mean, Tiger King, like, how do you top that for 2020? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I haven't watched, what's this, the social media one? Social I Dilemma. The, the Social Dilemma. I want to watch that. Excellent. Um, is it? Yes. I, that's what... That's what everyone in my family, my siblings, we all have like an ongoing text chain and they're all like, oh, you got to watch it. Um, I have not watched that one. What? See, I have been able to read a little bit more, but my movies have been things like 
the Willoughby's. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I haven't. It rings, it rings a bell, not- but I haven't seen it. Okay. It's a- just watch it. I think it's on Netflix. Is it animation? When- it's an animation movie. And it's the most bizarre. It's about these four kids who have a- parents that don't love them. <laughs> so they so they try to send their parents away on a vacation and claim they're orphans and then they go to like the <laughs> that's been my movie type of shows lately I mean of course Elf is probably the one I, 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 you can see that my level of movie watching There's I'm like documentaries no but Elf it, we've been watching that on stop um, but watch the Willoughby's it's Brilliant! It's I will. Yeah, it's so sorry. Let me know what you think about it. Send me a text uh, after you watch. It. All right, I watch it with my son because we joke about that all the time. I tell him he's adopted. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, watch the Willoughby's with him. He'll feel he'll feel very fortunate that you love him because like like the parents don't feed the kids because they're so in love with each other that they won't pay attention to their kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest show, but it's so funny. Sounds like a metaphor for some fire departments I work for. <laughs> <laughs> the chiefs are so in love with themselves they forget to take care yes. of their people <laughs> yes oh my god yeah all right well well speaking of chiefs or anyone else are, th- are there any people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world so i definitely think um frank Lido is like an absolute must i could sit and talk to frank all day long um, and oh, you know what? I do have another person. Um, Vincent's last name is escaping me, but we've just started working with someone who, um, he's down in Texas, recently retired. He's a pulmonologist that's interested in sleep and does a lot of sleep research and is just super brilliant in his thinking. Um, Vincent and I, I know his last name is MYS. L-I-W-I-E-C, but I don't know how you say that. Spell it one more time for me. N-Y-S. M-Y-S-L-I-W-I-E-C. Okay. I have no idea, but I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can introduce you guys by email. That'd be great. Fantastic. He, he's just like, he's, he's really interesting to listen to, but yeah, just got out retired. I think as a colonel out of the Air Force and, um, is still really active in sleep research and testifies. This is interesting. Testifies. Um, last time I, he called me about a project, a grant we were putting in and he goes, Oh, I'm getting ready to go back in and, and testify about someone who'd committed a crime in their sleep. I think is what it was. Really? Yeah. Although I didn't ask him which side he was testifying for. So I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah it, I don't know. It's funny. I get all these sleep ex- experts on, and I'm waiting for the day for them to go. No, you're full of shit, James. You know, 56 hour <laughs> work weeks are how firefighters thrive in life. But strangely, <laughs> I haven't had that yet. No matter where, yeah. what walk of life, they all seem to agree that we're killing our men and women. Yeah. But you know, now he, I just need yeah, to get the the people that pay the bills to actually buy into it. He had some interesting conversations around. You know, we were talking about like the whole concept of sleep hygiene, and he was like, you know, that's kind of out now, like sleep hygiene. We, but he talked about, and I can't remember the term he used, but it was like healthy sleepers or something like that. But he was, you'd love him. I'll send, I'll, I'll um, connect you to because he, he just is, I could sit and talk to him all day too, but yeah. Beautiful. Those, him and Frank. 
Excellent. All right. Well, then last I question. Recommend, I recommend everyone talk to Frank. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying, and I, I really enjoyed it. And the reason why I hadn't spoken to him before is because I wanted to do it face to face. He was so charismatic. I'm like, I need to sit down in front of this guy. Knowing he's New York based, that might not have happened for a while now. So I'll, I'll uh, take this as a sign to do one over Skype for now. Maybe we'll do a part two face to face when this is all blown over. <laughs> My absolute favorite thing about Frank is that Frank doesn't think he's anything special. Yeah, well, he, did, he lit the room up that day. It was, oh, it was incredible. He, he just, he has so many insights and he'll talk about something and I'll be like, well, what do you think about this? He's like, well, Sarah, what do you think? And I'm like, you're the expert. And he's like, I'm not the expert. And I'm like, you just don't even know. He's like, who would they want to hear this from? And I'm like, everyone wants to hear this from you, Frank. <laughs> He's just seen everything like he's like quite literally like every major event he's had some hand in like the response or no. And he just knows so much that. Yeah. Brilliant. We'll yeah. make it happen. Definitely. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So then last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and, and your research. Um, what do you do to decompress? Or is there something new you found this last year? Oh, I'm still looking for something to. <laughs> um, I have. I think the reading has been my. It's got to be the reading. It, that and I just like now when I get super stressed, I have an elliptical trainer, and I get on that and I just space out. It, it seems to help. It's not my preferred exercise, but at least I can do it. I I think I'm. I really considering buying a Peloton. My sister has one, and I tell you when I been at her house and I get on that and like they're like screaming their positive messages at me and you know dancing I'm like ah. so yeah I think, <laughs> I think that might be an investment in my mental health we're we're, we're gonna make yeah absolutely I've, I've, I've thought about reaching out to the the founder of Peloton actually I think that'd be another interesting conversation oh, totally should because that it is brilliant it is a brilliant and I don't like like the whole spin cycling thing. I've always been like, ugh. And then I tried it one time and I was like, I get it. I get it. Beautiful. I haven't done it yet. Actually, it's one of the few things, oh. you know, as far as in a gym setting I haven't done, so I need to. It's, I, I, and I've tried a lot of stuff. Like we, my sister and I used to do a blog where we just tried stupid fitness things. And I gotta say, my top five list Peloton is on it. Aerial Silks is another one that's on it. Aerial Yoga in particular. Love it. All right. Well, then for people listening, where can they find you online? Where How can they reach out to you if they want to learn more or, or chat? Yes. So I'm still on Twitter and I'm getting better at it. I tweeted two things today, um, which Sarah Ann, F-A-R-A-A-N-N-E 71 um, so still on Twitter, we ha are just ramping up some cool things that I'm excited about that our team is working on. Um, we're setting up a new website called the Firefighter Resource Network. Um, it should go live, I'm, but I think I should see right after the first of the year the um, mock-up of it. So it should be like January. But we're really working on creating things that are usable takeaways from the fire for the fire service. So we're going to have some like resources on there of um, you know, interpreting kind of the science type stuff, putting it more of a magazine wording approach um, and putting, you know, parking all our resources there. So it's not up and running yet, but after the first year, and I can send you the link once it's, once it is, um, I would say get on our, our mailing list because we're going to keep people updated when we put out new 
magazines and, and that kind of stuff. But I'm really excited and hoping we can create some like conversation there. And so we also have the center website uh, or center uh, um, Twitter and Facebook pages. We'll have that stuff on there too. Center for Fire Rescue and EMS Health Research. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, let me know when you have that out and I'll definitely push yeah. it out on my, my okay. immense social media following. Uh, you are like killing it. It's basic I, I, and uh, not advanced. Hey, it, <laughs> I, it's, there's so much I don't understand. We actually just hired a social media consultant because I'm like, I can barely tweet. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, but you really like, you've got quite the following. And then I see all your, your, um, book stuff i so next time we talk i'll probably have your book as one of my favorites because i that is on my short list of things that i need to read well i gotta send you a copy because I, I think i sent you the the kind of proof in a long time ago i believe but i need to send you the either the the paper copy or i'm doing the audio book i'm finishing that up next few weeks so um, whichever's better i only you. want it if you sign it okay i'll sign one and i'll send it to you oh that's fantastic <laughs> brilliant awesome. All right. Well, Sarah, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, last, you know, conversation was great. It was funny because I, I want to say, didn't we find out after that we were both going to be at the conference at the same time? I think we did. Yeah. So we didn't know that yeah. before. So then we met and, you know, now here we are again. But with you being one of the, the main people in our profession that is doing the research that everyone's screaming for, you know, your perspective of, of this last year is, is very important. So thank you for being so generous with your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. When you said, oh, we need to do another one, I was like, oh, my God, I'm that cool. I can be on flight. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, you have a fantastic holiday. Take care of yourself. Take care of everyone around you. Stay safe and sane. <laughs> <laughs>